battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Good morning, y'all, and welcome to The Valley Labor Report. This has been Joe, not Adam Keller this morning. Uh, He's still enjoying the anniversary festivities, but uh, we do have a great uh, interview that he recorded earlier for y'all today. Thank you again for joining us on this Thursday morning. And uh, big thanks to our first sponsor, uh, Labor Notes. And we're still looking for more sponsors. So if you know of a community or a company or maybe a union that would like to sponsor Shop Talk, please hit us up. And uh, it is June 22nd, uh, 22nd. Am I saying the right words? I think I am. I'm checking I'm checking my screens. <laughs> and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studios over here in Huntsville, Alabama. And all this will be live streamed on YouTube and Facebook. You can uh, pick up some of our previous Shop Talks uh, earlier. But today we have uh, Adam's interview with Bill Berry, a retired organizer, for a wide-ranging discussion uh, all about Bill's journey through the labor movement and, in particular, his work on internal organizing and closing up the open shop. Uh, so I'm going to let that spin here in just a minute. Uh This is all part of the expansion that you guys helped fund uh, this new weekly program. It's it's almost like we're making twice as many shows as we were previously, and uh, it's a big thanks to you guys. So thank you for supporting us. But a little word from our first about our first sponsors for this show. Uh, We are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is the media organizing project that since 1979 has been in the voice of union activism, who wants to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, work centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. Uh, with 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders of the movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are pl- proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. So go on over to labornotes.org to find out more. Uh, they've done a lot of live events here in Alabama. Some people uh, say that Alabama is a lost cause for unions, and uh, over here we definitely don't think that's the case. And, uh, and hopefully we prove that to you every week. But uh, thank you guys again for joining us, whether you're on YouTube, whether you are on Facebook, or wherever you get the Valley Labor Report. Remember, we also have a podcast, and the store has new merch, some brand new t-shirts. Well, they're not brand new, but over the last couple of months, you may have seen them. I really like the designs. I haven't gotten one myself, but I'm trying to collect all of the versions of uh, TVL merch that I can possibly get. But uh, thanks again for joining us. I'm going to let Adam take it away with his interview with Bill Barry. Uh, right here on TVLR. All right. Good morning again, everyone. 
This is Adam Keller with the Valley Labor Report, and very excited to have Bill Barry on the program. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Adam, for having me. Glad to yeah. be here, and I think it's exciting what you're doing. There are so few union media events around. It's part of the lack of visibility of the union movement. You know, we should have our own Tucker Carlson's and people like like that that get attention and make make our issues everybody's issues. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, definitely uh, don't know that I want to be the union Tucker Carlson per se, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I absolutely appreciate your support. And and yeah, we we need me media that is by and for working people. Uh, when I talk about Tucker Carlson, I seem to mean someone who is incredibly visible and topic of conversation. So whatever issues he brings up, are issues that people are talking about and are spread. And obviously the right-wing anti-union groups have a whole media network that we don't have, but we could. Absolutely. We could. Amen. We got brother. talent, skills, money. We could do it. But we just, it's got to be that willingness to, to do something different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so before I, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your career and, and you've had a long career organizing workers yeah. in, in this country and uh, want to give you a chance to talk about that. But before we get into that, I'm curious to if you could just tell me a little bit about how you got started in the labor movement. And if, did you have like a union background uh, yeah. in terms of your household? Uh, not in my household, but I, it was a fluke. I was working as a carpenter in Massachusetts for a non-union contractor who was a thief like most non-union contractors. And mm -hmm. she decided money, he made me work part-time, requiring me to work part-time, helping him repossess cars. I mean, it was a whole seamy moment of my life. But he was ambitious and wanted to bid on bigger jobs. And so he signed a contract with the Carpenters Union in Worcester and hired three or four other guys from uh, brought them out from the hall. And so I was able to get in and become an apprentice and quickly moved up through that. Uh, unfortunately, and I, I was a, like a people I often see when I talk to the people from industries here to make America great again. They say, you don't know what it was like. And I say, yeah, I do. Because one day I was working and I felt a little twinge in my back, got home, it was really painful. I went in the next day and it turned out I had a slip disc. And this was in 1972. And the medical profession then says, if you got a slip disc, you get a spinal fusion, which meant for the rest of your life, you were locked up. And long story short, I ended up not doing it. Cause of severe dislocation in my personal life, my wife and I divorced, but I was in a, Bar and I met a guy who had been hired by a new SEIU in Worcester. And they had been a little company union municipal workers and they had affiliated with the SEIU. And the president of the SEIU at that time, George Hardy, was really emphasizing organized and had provided money to the local. And so this guy who was organizing was a recent graduate of the UMass Labor Studies program which is still in existence today that Tom Jurovich is running. But he said, oh, I need help passing out leaflets. Will you come with me? And I said, sure, when I can walk, I'll be glad to, uh, to do it. So we were organizing a place 
and history repeats itself, St. Vincent's Hospital. And it was an enormous facility run by the sisters at that time. And it was most recently in the news when they had a 10-month strike. And it was owned by Tenet Healthcare out of Houston. It's completely changed, new buildings and stuff like that. But the mass nurses did it. But we leafleted and got nowhere. But then the locals said, well, we got a little extra money. You want to go to work, basically minimum wage. And I said, well, sure, because I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. And they basically set up an incentive program. Anything you can organize, you can have. So for the next two, three years, I organized all the public sector workers around the Worcester area, negotiated first contracts, which is something which is very, a skill that's missing today. Uh, and it was very helpful to learn things then. And for various reasons, then I decided I want to move on. I went then worked for uh, almost nine years for the United Electrical Workers all across the country, uh, three or four years in the South. I didn't get as far South as Alabama, but I got to Panama City, Florida. I got to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Greenville, South Carolina, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Waynesboro, Virginia, and places like that. And so I got a good sense of what it was like. And these were major runaways, Westinghouse and General Electric, that were coming into the area. Um, and then I got tired of traveling, and I took a job for five and a half years as the head officer for the Philadelphia Newspaper Guild. And we okay. went through a strike there. I was reminded of the strike recently when a guy at you watch uh, Democracy Now!, one of the co-hosts is Juan Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. and he was having a farewell event on TV. I think he's moving to Chicago or someplace like that. But uh, one of the things he did, he showed a picture of us. He was the strike chairman. In Philly, we had a strike for 46 days. Wow. He was, I was the head of the local, and he was a chairperson. And so he still remembers. How, he said, and could people call me up after they said, did you know Juan Gonzalez? Because he mentioned Bill Berry. And I said, yeah, yeah. Um, I then went to work uh, briefly for the Washington Baltimore Newspaper Guild and then went back into organizing, had a fabulous job uh, in the Southwest. It was Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas for the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers with a wonderful woman, Joan Suarez, who was the leader of the Ferris strike back in the 70s. Um, but I met an officer here briefly, and we ended up getting married, and I came back here to Baltimore, and I've been here ever since. And I became the organizing director in Pennsylvania briefly, and then here in Baltimore. And then in 92, I had both a falling out with the officer of the union who resented the fact that I was helping business agents become much more aggressive in dealing with the companies. His idea of resolving a problem was to take the boss to lunch. I said, no, that, you know, not, not the way to do it. Right. And uh, my older son was born at that time in 92. So I took five years off. I was a stay-at-home dad. I then got a great job at a community college as director of labor studies for the state of Maryland. So I traveled all across the state doing union training at various locals. And as I said, I, we were talking before the program, uh, my biggest opposition to the program was from some established union officers and the steel workers and the auto workers and the IBEW, who didn't want their members to learn anything. Because if they did, they could then run against them for office and get elected. 
And that was a catastrophe that these offices never wanted to contemplate. And in 2012, then I retired and I've been doing union training and uh, various activities. Uh, now, labor history classes, I'm doing a, a program, very interesting and for unions about the Red Scare from the 50s and 60s. And so it's a lot of new stuff. Uh, I have a whole history project on the Sparrows Point Steel Plant. because I taught there for a number of years, did union training and listen to people start telling their stories. So I have 25 oral histories of people, video interviews, and three books of transcript, but I've got a whole Sparrows Point project. But one of the things which was very interesting was the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings there in 1957. And uh, the FBI agent lived uh, five blocks from where I live today. And a woman in our neighborhood was the daughter of one of the guys who was called. So there's history wow. comes back. So it's been that I've been staying active and uh, doing various activities and, and helping out different unions, helping the Starbucks people. There's a woman here that's uh, what's a brand new organizer. I recruited her 30 years ago. And so, so we're, it's great. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, there's a lot, a lot there that I could, I could talk about. Um, yeah. uh, one thing I'm curious, your newspaper strike in Philly, what was the outcome? How'd it go? We got one of the biggest settlements ever. Hell yeah. And one of the things that was a complicating thing, and you see the newspapers do it, is we had nine different unions. We all went on strike together. And so the paper was totally shut down. And the challenge was often the egos and the personalities of the officers of the other unions. Mm. But we ended up getting a $150 a week pay raise. And um, this was about a 35% for the guild members over a four-year wow. contract. And 150 bucks a week increase um, in 1985 dollars is a lot. Yes. So it's 4,400 people. Uh, and the best thing about it, one of the things I said about negotiations, certainly on a strike, is you want the union to come back stronger than it went out. And in this case, we did. And right after the strike was settled and people were back to work, uh, the management of the company tried to start a deauthorization campaign. Wow. And a deauthorization campaign, for those of your listeners who are not familiar, means it's, it's timely at any time, but you can have a separate vote through the labor board on whether or not to keep your union security clause in the contract. And so it's a, an attack on the structure of the union. And so the company got a couple of their uh, big name reporters and gave them a car and said, go out to the areas and get people to sign the petition to have an election. And the great thing was I had a steward call me from one of the bureaus and said, well, you're going to do the labor board. I said, no, we're going to take this thing straight up. I'm not going to worry about it. And my favorite memory, and I can't, repeat the exact language, but these guys came into the advertising department and this very nice young woman, an advertising salesperson, beautiful young woman, they said to her, will you sign this? And she said, F you, get out of here. <laughs> that was the end of their campaign. And that made me feel so good because the union then 
after 46 days on strike, came back and people were incredibly loyal and felt it was really strong and was really good. And of course, the paychecks were higher, but just that sense of solidarity that you want to have. And you'll see one of the things I'm doing now, uh, I'm writing a booklet, which is going to come out on getting the first contract. But the challenges of running a successful strike and some officers think, well, the only solution is you take a lousy contract or you go on strike. And what I'm going to say is there's a whole range of other things that you may want to do. You're in Alabama. The Warrior Coal is probably the best example of what can go wrong on a strike. And they're out and they're back with no contract. And the bitterness and the anger and the frustration of going through that. And, and it spreads. Right. One of the things, if you have a good strike, everybody tells their relatives and you have organizing possibilities and it builds you up in the community. If you have a lousy strike, the reverse happens. And what we have seen in the United States is since 1957 or so is this decline of the union movement. You know, in 57, we were 38% of the workforce. It was estimated that another 40% of the workforce got union benefits and conditions. And I started negotiating contracts then. It was absolutely assumed that the employer would fully pay health insurance for the worker and the family. No co-pays, no nothings, no doctor fee, nothing. Right. And it was by the 80s, they started chipping away at that. Everybody had a pension. Today, nobody, almost nobody has a pension. Uh, you know, there were none of this two tiers and three tiers and multi-tier uh, stuff that you see in these contracts. And it, so it's been an erosion, which is why we're 5% of the public of the private sector workforce and 10% of the workforce generally. I mean, it's been a catastrophe. And so you'll see in the document I sent you words to remember. My biggest thing is what we've done, don't keep doing it because it's been a failure. And right. if you were a manager of a baseball team with a record like that, you would have been fired long ago. Just we got to do things differently and rethink, and hopefully, organizing campaigns at like Bessemer, where you where it was not successful, or at Amazon, where in Staten Island, where it was, are a small sign of things to come. But as I will say in the book, that these places they got to get a contract. Just organizing winning labor board actually not enough. Staten Island has been more than a year company won't even meet with them. Starbucks, there have been 300 elections. They won them all, nothing going on. You know, there's another 8,500 Starbucks locations. So we got to, it's a rethinking and it's all of us need to put our heads together and figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? And for right. many of the officers of the unions, it's a, it, to go back to what I said, it's a challenge because what they have been doing, what they've been collecting big salaries for has not worked. We can't keep doing it. So. Right, right. And and that's something that I think is obvious if you look at the facts. I mean, right, yeah. the, the facts Numbers speak for themselves. Tell you. Numbers they, don't lie. Right, exactly. So let's talk about some of, you know, so that's what hasn't been working. Let's talk about some of what can work, uh, because that's really been a lot of your focus. And I know you have written uh, a little something called Closing Up the Open Shop, yeah. A Guide to Internal Organizing. Um, so talk to us about that and, and 
kind of why you wrote that and, and how that is relevant to this conversation about what's been working, hasn't been working in labor? Well, what I found as I was doing training and one of the things particularly in the last three years when you're doing stuff on Zoom, you have, have students from all around. I mean, I even had a woman in my class, one of my classes from Australia, and she would get up at five in the morning to come to the class, that the Janus decision and these attacks, the the open, let me go back for people who are not listening, maybe not as familiar, that back in the 40s, uh, the unions would, would enforce what was called the union shop. And that is everybody in there had to be in the union. And this is a tradition that goes back to 1805. And a great piece of labor history are the cordwainers trials from Philadelphia. And the cordwainers were shoemakers and they would make individual shoes and they would work in a workshop, but they organized unions. And the law at that time said, this is a crime, criminal offense. And so the Philadelphia cordwainers were brought to trial in Philadelphia. One of the great things is a guy named Thomas Morgan, who invented shorthand, took a transcript of the trial so you can read it. But these guys enforced solidarity. That is, if you were a member of the union paying dues, you were okay. If you were not, they would not sit on the bench with you. They would not talk to you. You know, so they enforce it. And eventually. Um, as unions grew in the 30s and 40s, the union shop became uh, a, a big deal. It was, it was a dependency in some ways on the employer, but the agreement was if you're working someplace, you've got to be in paying dues. Well, in 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act was passed, which made that illegal. And so there are now 25 states where private sector unions cannot negotiate that clause. And so you have a huge opportunity to, uh, or a need to organize uh, non-members. Uh, many, a few states, like 10 states, in the public sector, which is a much higher percentage, about a third of the public sector workers in this country are in unions, would, would uh, had negotiated agency fees. And an agency fee says, okay, you can't be required to join the union, but you've got to pay a fee or the expenses that we have bargaining your conditions. You get all the same conditions that we get, the same benefits, the same pay. And if you have a grievance, we have to represent you. So therefore we should get some money. Well, the right wing is a constant anti-union activity and it filed court cases. And they had one about five years ago with a woman named Rebecca Friedrichs, who was a teacher out of California. And she claimed that she was opposed to paying union dues because union protected teachers were not good. It was just a fabrication because she was an anti-union person. And it was gonna to go to the Supreme Court. And uh, right at the time it was gonna to go to the Supreme Court, uh, the Justice Scalia died. And so it was tied and didn't pass. Immediately the right wing. And again, this is what we need to look at. The right wing anti-union people are constantly aggressive, proactive, and going at it. And they find another guy, Paul Janus, who uh, filed because he objected. His claim was his free speech was infringed on because the union donated money to Planned Parenthood, and he didn't like that. 
And I went to the Supreme Court. By this time, the Supreme Court had changed. Um, the appointees were conservative and it passed. So there's no more agency fee. And so everybody then has got to go out and organize. And so the book is about an attitude. I'm working with a teacher's union in a suburban county outside Baltimore. And there's about 8,000 people in, in the unit, the teachers and the paraprofessionals. And I said to them, well, how's your membership? And they said, oh, it's really great. It's 90%. I said, yeah, that means you have 800 people right within you who are not members. And I said, yeah, yeah. It's like they didn't care. I said, you got to, 100% is what your goal has to be. You got to go after these people. And, and I had worked in the South with different open shops. And so I just laid out a whole campaign about how you go out and you get lists of who are non-members and why are they non-members and, you know, systematically go out and organize them. And I had experience uh, many years ago in California. There was a company uh, that made the, uh, brake shoes for uh, railroad traffic. It's in, in uh, Pomona, California, but it was owned by Standard Oil and Standard Oil had a, a company corporate policy of never a union shop. So it was all open shop. When we got there, there was maybe 30% of the members. And I said to the officers, hey, we're going to negotiate a contract. We've got to go get these people. And something, we asked some of the guys why you hadn't joined. Well, nobody ever asked me. You know, it hadn't, you get so dependent on union shop agreement where the company signs people up when you come in and it's nothing to do. Again, that's a servicing model. And so I learned from there and we learned down in the South uh, how to create activities. One of the things I talked about, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I still have a person from 1978, 79 calls me White Shadow. One of the things we did in Waynesboro, Virginia, we organized a, a, a furniture factory, Stanley Furniture, and low membership, but to try and get people, and we started a, a you know, local union basketball team. We had all kinds, and I was the coach, and I, <laughs> I had all kinds of people who wanted to join. And we said, well, you want to, it's a union basketball team. So you want to come on the team, you got to be a member of the local. And so we signed up a bunch of people, but just stuff like that. But it was a mentality that we're got to have 100%. Right. And what I say in other shops is your goal is every member participates in two union activities every year. Oh, I love that. Not just showing up every three years or four years to vote on a contract, but constant activity. And you can do social activity. I was just um, reviewing a book here from two or three years ago called Sown in Co-Country. And it's oral histories of women who organized runaway garment shops in northeastern Pennsylvania. And they left New York City where they were in the uh, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, came out to Pittston, Pennsylvania, and worked for British Grant and trying to organize. But when they organized, they would do, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, videos of the ILGWU musical called Pins and Needles. Okay. I'm not familiar with Go look with that them. up. I will. Because it was started during the 30s and incredible talent, perfectly, but the shop workers would leave the garment shops and would go and practice. And it became a big uh, star. Uh, the LP I had once I used to play for some of my classes, there was a great song called It's Better with a Union Man. And nice. on this record, they had an obscure woman 
whose family worked in the garment industries and uh, she had a nice voice and I think maybe she would work out okay. And with Barbara Streisand, so <laughs> uh, at a young age, but it's a it's a terrific. But so they did this. They did not only musicals; they did kids stuff called the Lollipop Show, but just kind con- community services, picking for other locals, helping organize and things like that. And they just transformed this area from a non-union. It had been a union area because it was a coal mining area, but the mines were really closing. And it was an enormous change because all the women, all the workers were, were women. And all of a sudden they were the income for the family. And they have a great story in here that the women were allowed to register to vote. When election time came, the husband would go in and vote for the wife. So they didn't figure that she was capable. And they had one woman who said, I'm gonna challenge that. She was so worried that she fainted. But I mean, the cultural changes of the women's movement and the changes in this area were, were Tennis. That's what unions can do. And unions in a state like Alabama have got nowhere to go but up. Right. You know, all those histories of Alabama with the racial issues and the uh, steel industry and, and the mining and things like that over 100 years, really important. But we've got to do it. And every member has to figure it's our responsibility because our conditions are jeopardized. And we don't that. organize more people. We don't get that 5% up, back up to 40% or 50%. We're stuck. And it costs us. Every time we go to the, see your paycheck and you have that health care taken out of it. Every time you get a 401k instead of a pension. Every time you work straight time, um, 12 hours, like some of the railroads and things like that. And work under unsafe conditions. Right. The whole right. thing in Pennsylvania now on railroad safety, passing a law to require two people on each train because the companies want to get rid of that second right. doctor. But you think, what would happen if the engineer has a heart attack? We're, we're going to run that train. Right. So, yeah. I mean, and and I think that's, that's so important to think about the leverage that we have as working people. Yeah. And, um, you know, this just reality that you know uh if we had 40 percent or 50 percent of the workforce versus the, yep. the you know eight nine ten percent we have now it's just it's a different ball game and uh there was a lot you said that I, I really appreciated and and that resonated with me um in terms of you know the organizing outside and thinking outside the box uh is something that really you know comes out at me and uh organizing right right and Honestly, I, I didn't have much other way to do things here in Alabama. And that was something I talked to, you know, when I was working for the Alabama Education Association, I remember when Janice came through and, and some of our Northern colleagues were freaking out. And, you know, I wasn't quite freaking out. I mean, it wasn't going to directly impact us. And, I, right. you know, the thing right. was, we already had to go ask people to join. Yep. And yep. that was not an option. And um, we have to be creative because we don't even have collective bargaining agreements with educators in right. Alabama. So we have to be right. creative in how we demonstrate activity uh, and how we engage members and, and potential yep. members into it. Yep. So I think folks who've been organizing in the South uh, have already been by necessity incorporating yep. more outside of the box strategies. Yep. Like you, like Absolutely. you said, with the basketball league up in Virginia, I mean, I think that is brilliant. 
uh, and, and our unions could be doing a lot more of that kind of stuff to reach folks however we need to reach them because there's not one yeah. there's not one wrap there's not one solution that's going to uh, attract every single worker but uh, oh that and that's that's exactly the key and workers have different skills that mm -hmm. is some people have got a personality like you have where you would be a steward not afraid to go other people may not but they're great at having kids family parties right some locals uh i was talking in um, virginia a school district just outside washington dc i can't remember the exact number but it was something like 121 different language groups wow so you got teachers and culture and so some locals have done you know one of the issues inside a workplace is you got different immigrant groups and stuff like that and they don't trust each other and blah 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 but you have a a party where one culture is featured the food and the music and stuff like that and everybody goes and I right think it's a great but they all participate and they get their families to participate and their kids come because it used to be two generations ago you were in a union family and the family kids would sit there at the table and hear the parents talking about the union this and you know and that's gone right so we've got to bring that back and bring kids up we've got to put labor history into the schools you know one of the things that i stress is what i call critical class theory they talk about critical race theory well that's fine critical class taught about us because all the conditions that people have which are jeopardized right workers compensation safety and health conditions things like that um, and one of the challenges for many of the officers of unions over the last two generations is they think there's a political solution to everything. Like, oh, we get government to pass something like that. Well, you're in Alabama, you're a perfect example of that. The government's not going to pass a, a collective bargaining law necessarily anytime soon. So you go on without it, as the unions did in the 1930s. There was no law. They said, all right, we're going to organize. And as I said, the inspirational group, to me, these uh, Philadelphia cord wingers, uh, George Polis and his little brother, they said, we're criminals. That was the law, but we're going to do it anyhow. And we're going to go around town. If people come in from another area. We want to hear their history. Or were they in the union up in Wilmington, Delaware or not? And we're going to enforce it. And yeah. if you're not in the union, your name is shit in this workplace. Right. And that's it. Right, right. And I, I think that's why knowing our, our heritage and our history as working yeah. folks is so important. Absolutely. because. Folks yep. under much more dire and difficult circumstances than we yep. currently face have yep. been able to organize successfully. And I think that's huge because it's easy to fall into despair and it's easy to fall into, yep. you know, cynicism and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, our, our elders that came before us have, have organized against the yep. bosses and the politicians yep. facing much harder circumstances. It's inspiring. And I think hearing them, I think every local should have a, a history component on their web page. And one of the things I've found is oral history is really good. You have the old timers take 10 minutes to talk about what it was like before the union came in or what was this particular situation like. And the new hires see that. One of the things on internal organizing and, and organizing generally is a huge emphasis on new hires. And some of the unions, like the federal government, they get 4,000 a month new hires across the country. 
and to get them in the union, get them not just paying dues, but being a union member, understanding the union, participating in it, having opinions, and appreciating what they got, where it came from. Because a lot of times, when you hire a walk on a job, you figure, well, all these benefits and everything just God gave them to me. They just dropped out of the sky. Right, right. And what they don't understand is what people struggle to do to get them and what they have to keep doing to keep them. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, some of the conversations we're, we're having, I think, really brings me to my next question, which is something you've written about the different models of unionism. Yeah. And we've mentioned it a little bit already. But could you talk talk a little bit about the, the different models of unionism? Well, I, I do it as a call the servicing model and the organizing model. And you can tell anybody who's watching this show that they can either get it from you or they can get it from me. I've got charts and use them as the appendices to every book that I do. But the servicing model is the traditional, what we have today with a few people at the top, make all the decisions, control all the resources, don't want anybody else to know anything. And life is good for them. In many cases they are making salaries significantly higher than the people they represent. Uh, benefits are better. And they don't want to change. And they somehow think that if there's a change, they're going to be threatened. And uh, we've said it sometimes when people run for office against them. But their record is failure. You know, we have gone from 37% of the workforce to 5% private sector. That is not the direction we want to go. We have gone from no open shop states to 26. And that's not the direction we want to go. And you can see it their relentless opposition just this week, uh, the anti-union people in Maine tried to get an open shop law passed and they were blocked by the legislature, but they, they tried. Michigan was the only state in the last 25 years that reversed the open shop. And so all these other places, Alabama and places like that, there's no campaigns that you don't go to, when you support candidate for office, you say, okay, you're gonna vote to reverse this law gotta do it and so the servicing model is just a few people they don't want membership participation they don't want the members to know anything they will discourage activities of, of any kind of getting people involved they are reactive that is they don't do anything until the employer does something and then they'll say oh we'll mm -hmm. file a grievance or we'll do something else i just had an online discussion with uh, people in the labor education group about the difference between a gripe and a grievance. Mm. And the people were minimizing what is a gripe. I said, no, no, a gripe is a concern that one of your members has about a condition at work, and you should take it seriously and act on it. And the servicing model says, well, if it's not in the contract, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. And my answer is it's in the contract because the first clause of every contract is the recognition agreement. And right. the recognition agreement says the union has the right to bargain over term wages, hours, terms and conditions of employment. And terms and conditions of employment mean anything in, around, or related to the job. And we're now seeing in the last five, six years, social media people being disciplined for stuff that they put up on social media 
And the union says, oh, well, you know, that was off the job. We can't do that. Yes, you can. And that recognition clause when the auto workers had to sit down strike in Flint, Michigan after 44 days, what they got was a recognition agreement. They said, that's all we need. We're going to fight it out from there, fight it out in the departments and every issue will take it. And so I think the question of somebody has a gripe, but other people may have it. And that's a way to build a movement. And you say to people, oh, you don't like this. You're not a member now. Why don't you join and sign this grievance and come to this meeting? Um, one of the things that's very important that I stress is open bargaining. That is, everybody should come to negotiations. Normally, it's a small group from the union. And often, they will agree to a blackout and information with the company. And I think right. that is an absolute mistake because you lose your leverage which is the membership. And you need to look, as I said in the organizing book, the structure today is so different because your company could be owned by some post office box down the Cayman Islands. You got right. to figure out making the decisions where they are. And you see, for example, in the railroad strike, the biggest railroad is controlled by Warren Buffett. So, you have to go and find out where they are, and that's involving your members and gets them involved in the public. Um, and so the servicing model doesn't want to do that because as soon as you start giving information out, members will start saying, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that was a very smart decision. And you've seen in, in a couple of cases, um, Warrior Coles were one of them, that the officers of the union bring a contract back to the members and, and, the, and we certainly see this in Caterpillar, really, and say, well, this is the best we can do. And the members say, no, we don't want it. You know, it's not what we want. Right. And we certainly see this challenge uh, in the UPS negotiations because the new officers said, we're going to change all the, I mean, the last contract was the ultimate servicing model because the membership voted 55% against it. Jimmy Hoffa found some obscure part of the of the uh, union constitution that said in order for it to not pass, it has to be rejected by 60%. And he said, therefore, this contract is in effect. And it's got part-time things, tiers, um, special- and Don't you just love it when your union uh, embraces the same like technocratic bureaucratic yeah. nonsense that your bosses do. I mean, wow. But see, one of the things I would say, though, and not to pick at it, is it's not the union. It is the officers. Right. right. Because and, But see, that's how it's going to be framed, I think, by the average no, worker, I right? That. Is the union did this. The, and so I, I think that's a very important distinction that. you're making there. Uh, and it's something that but, I think uh, is a challenge when you are in facing those kinds of decisions, right? And and how do you talk uh, with one workers of the favorite, in the midst of those? One of the favorite gimmicks that my students have always loved to hear me tell is when I was working as a staff rep and you walk in like the lunchroom or someplace like that and someone would say, well, I want to see someone from the union. And I had a mirror in my pocket that I carried <laughs> and I would hold it up. And I said, you want to see someone from the union? There it is. I love that. And it was a, a forcing your members to understand. And one of the great things uh, I often or always say, 
that the quality of an individual member in an open shop state is better than in a state like Maryland. Because these are people who voluntarily are in a union. And when I was uh, organizing director, one of the things that I did was the organizing director in the Southwest, they had never really done internal organizing campaigns. And I didn't know enough, it was the first time I really dealt with it, but we went and organized like 800 new people in a nine months when I was there. But the people who were in the union were a thousand percent loyal and they were so great in these little, you know, McAllen, Texas and places like that. Uh, it was inspirational and it was really fun to work with them and to know them because they were in the union because they wanted to be in the union and they did it. Right. Uh, they kept right. it up. But I think it comes back to few people in a union thinking I'm scared to have too many people involved I don't want to do it because then they're going to question what I do they're going to look at what I do um, one of the things that you certainly saw in the last four or five years in the auto workers no one looked at where the money went and these officers were stealing millions they had houses they had trips and nobody burped about it and it spread out to all levels of the union in different places. And it, I think it's horrible, an embarrassment. And yeah, the government caught them, but we'll see what the new guys do. And, and again, salaries are you know $250,000 a year and people work in the shop making 60. It's a different universe. Right, so it's right. Not a good structure. Right. Not and, a good structure. Uh, so, Let's talk a little bit more then about the organizing model that sort of stands in contrast to that sort okay. of model. And well, the organizing model says that you want every member involved in the union all the time. Mm. And it goes back a little bit of what we said here that yes, you're going to have disagreements. And anybody who's negotiated a contract can tell you that they're just built-in disagreements within, <laughs> excuse me, every bargaining unit. That is, you got money on the table from a company, 60-year-old person wants to put it in the pension, 25-year-old person wants to put it in the pocket. Right. Either of them is bad, they just look at individual uh, collective bargaining from an individual point of uh, view. But you wanna be able to say every, person is involved. And as I said, the, the last few years have been very divisive. Uh, Donald Trump is very popular. And we got 47% union vote for elections. So uh, there's dispute. And I think a lot of the cultural issues are coming up. Um, what can be taught in the schools? Can you wear a, a, but, a gay button? What days do you celebrate? You know, who do you put on your can of Bud Light, for Christ's sake? Um, and so you will have some disputes and you have to say to people, look, we're going to have a disagreement. We're not going to get personal. We're not going to get nasty. We'll just agree that we different ways. And it's like saying to you, Adam, okay, I'm going to drive to Birmingham. What's the best way to get here? And you may say, well, if you go this route and that route, you talk to somebody else and say, oh, no, no, you go the other route. You know, right. The goal is you're going to the same place. You just have different ideas of how you're going to get there. Right. And but building up 
the membership and saying we want every member to participate in two union activities every year. And you can do it, for example, in a grievance. Because traditionally the grievance is a member has a problem or there's a violation of the contract and they go to the steward. Well, the steward will then sign a grievance and file it and move it up with the idea, oh, we're gonna, if we don't get this in five years, we'll go to arbitration or something like that. Do group grievances, get the whole department to sign yeah. the grievance. I and had a lot of success with that. I had a lot of success getting members engaged yeah. with that. They they enjoy it. Because when, yeah, and they're excited and they're fun. I mean, one of the things that you do is you make the union fun and exciting. And when you have a group grievance, you can then say, okay, we're going to have a grievance meeting. They're all going to be here because mm -hmm. they sign the grievance. It's not just a couple stewards in private with the personnel director. We're going to have it and make it a big issue. And you spread it throughout the shop. And the certainly locals, some locals have learned during COVID that they can really reach out. I have a guy who's a business agent for a building trades local out in Colorado, and it's a statewide local. And so when they have a membership meeting, they'll get 25 people who live in the Denver area. You're on Zoom, you get 600 people from all around the state. And yes, it creates questions for the business agent that they might not know what to do. But boy, it's a huge, exciting experience. And all of a sudden, people see each other and right. participate. And that's the organizing model. It's the goal is to get as many people as possible to participate. You also say to them, this union's got to expand. And so do you have relatives or friends working in non-union shops? around this area. And one of the failures of the union movement is not coordinating, organizing geographically. So that if you're in IATSE in your area and somebody says, oh yeah, I have a, my daughter works at a supermarket. Well, IATSE is not gonna organize the supermarket, but it's a lead for food and commercial workers or someone else who could, because you need to make every area 100% union. And, focus on bargaining power and leverage. And that is a, your average member needs to understand that their benefits will go up and their wages will go up the more people are organized. So it's a huge difference. And laws will change. I mean, the, most people have no concept. Of, well, Alabama is a perfect example. No minimum, no state minimum wage. It's $7.25 and it's been that way since what, 2007 or so? Yeah. Um, and so anybody going to work, that's what you got. Maryland has got a little more robust union movement, not great, but the minimum wage is, you know, 14 or 15 or something like that here. So, right, absolutely. So pays off. It does. Yeah. And I think, I think it's just an approach of recognizing that. The engagement of your membership, your your capacity of your membership, yep. that's where your power yep. and your strength comes from, yep. not from your yep. lawyers and lobbyists, yep. PAC contributions. Yep. And yep. it's a different mindset. It's a different attitude, like you said, uh, but it's the kind of attitude that we need to reinvigorate this movement and to actually begin growing again. Uh, Amen, brother. Amen. I, I just I, so I think the work that you're doing is very important. Uh, I really love your focus on internal organizing. Uh, I think that's something that every every union 
has to be getting better at doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't have a choice. The results speak yeah. for themselves. So, Bill, was there anything else? Any uh, parting words you had for us this morning? Oh, I just, only thing is just solidarity and be proactive. You know, every member watching this, figure what can I do to help build my union? Uh, one of the things that we tried to do in the last year or so, there's an organi organization called Labor's Bookstore that started and they sponsored uh, educational programs, stuff like that. But we created websites. One of my biggest uh, uh, obsession, I mean, not to work, but it's to share best union practices. Yes. That, that is, someone figures out how to sign up a non-member in the state of Alabama. Well, that will work in the state of South Carolina as well, or the state of Vermont or New Hampshire, places like that. And one of the failures, because we don't have a union movement, that there should be a centralized place where a new person can go and, you know, technology is so great these days. You can have uh, online stuff. I did a, um, some training online for the Amalgamated Transit Union steward training where it was all in video and you could, anybody could access it at any time. I think that they've had a change of offices there. I don't know if that's up anymore, but someone is successful at getting a first contract or at getting to 100% membership in an open shop state, or in organizing a competitor or a new place, that information needs to get around. Also, the failures need to get around. That is, I tried this and it didn't work. So I gotta do something else. So then second person coming along is not gonna try the same thing that failed for the first person. They think, right. well, what the hell, it worked there, I'm not gonna try it here. Let me move on. But it's that proactive, it's a constant involvement, it's making things better, being aggressive, that I think is the attitude that we got to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bill Berry, longtime organizer, really, really appreciate your, your work and your well, career. You, Adam. Appreciate you spending some time with me this morning. Great. Wonderful. And people can contact me through you, and I'll be glad to chat with anybody. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us for Shop Talk today. Uh, I've been Ben Job, just filling in for Adam Keller. But that's it for the 15th episode of Shop Top. Hope it was worth your time, guys. And I really appreciate all you guys listening. If you enjoyed it, please share with your network. Make sure you're plugged into our work. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show and probably uh, one of the only ones made by uh, workers for workers. Every Saturday morning, that is 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio on WVNN here in Huntsville. And the entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and our podcasts. And portions of the program are played on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. Uh, also, we have TikTok. Uh, definitely check that out. Uh, Joe's been doing some good work putting the TikToks out there. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report on Saturday mornings starting at 9.30 on WVNN. I already read that, but it's on my script. But anyways, we encourage you to check out the website, TVLRFM. We also have the shop, and we have articles up on the website, including news and commentary relative to working people. 
You can sign up for our email newsletter when you're there. And you can ch check out the merch. That's TVLRFM uh, slash store. And finally, rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of our free content. We appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show. We are looking for sponsors for Overtime and Shop Talk. And I'm uh, excited that uh, Adam will be finalizing the details on our very first Shop Talk sponsors. And we still need a couple more to sustain this series. Uh, like I said, this is, program is all part of the uh, expanded show where we're doing two shows a week. Thanks to you guys' support, like most of this money comes straight from you guys. So please uh, tell your friends, tell your family to support us. Uh, we really appreciate That being said, uh, Beyond Unions and allied organizations were also interested in other media outlets, union print shops, vendors, publishers, anyone who might be interested in reaching an audience of union activists and allies. So hit us up if you have ideas for sponsorships or you're interested in uh, organizing uh, and becoming a sponsor yourself. Our biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recur recurring contribution at tvlrfm slash donate. We also have Patreon if you prefer to donate that way, and we'll even take the good old-fashioned checked mailed to our P.O. box. Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. Please don't forget to like, review, and share, and subscribe. And finally, if you share our mission to grow a Southern labor movement, uh, <laughs> sorry, my script's a little goofed here. If you want the media that is for the working people, by the working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at TVLRFM slash donate. All power to the workers and solidarity, y'all. We will see you next time. <laughs>